Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and welcome to Lakeview Church in person and online. This is the point in the service where we dismiss the kids up through fifth grade to go to Lakeview Kids with Mr. Dave. And so all the kids are going to mass exodus out through the doors and have a good time. <laughs> While the kids are, are headed out, let me point out all these shoe boxes that are piled up on either side. Um, the, the, technically the due date back for those is today. Uh, and then we're supposed to turn them into City Church this week, City Church in Madison. And then they ship them out to Samaritan's Purse uh, and they'll get shipped out all around the world. So if you have yours today, you can um, leave it up here on the front of the stage after um, the service is over. If you forgot, you could probably bring it back like tomorrow and we'll still get it to City Church uh, for you. Um, but those are, that's cool. Uh, and also the, the uh, turkey boxes that we're doing for local outreach, though the tags are all taken. So good job. Um, and we will be packing all those bags next week. So if you could bring um, all of the food supplies, whatever you picked up, um, next Sunday. And then we'll be packing those in the boxes and delivering them uh, to Sand Hill Elementary School where they will be given to families in need in our community. Uh, also, parents, you will pick your kids up today in the gym. So if you are wondering where your kids are, they'll be in the gym after the service. All right, um, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. We are starting the last chapter of the letter of Philippians. While you're finding that, um, most of you know, because I've talked about it a lot, I love to trout fish. Uh, and I particularly like to fish for trout on these small little streams that are all over the place in Wisconsin. Um, sometimes it can be a little tricky. And there was one time just uh, a couple of months ago when I was out and, and I was fishing a new stream that I hadn't been uh, to before. And I was walking along and I, of course I had my waders and all my gear and the grass is like this tall because it's late summer and everything's overgrown. And, and so I was walking along and uh, stepping on ground that looked to me to be normal everyday ground that you walk on except as I was walking along all of a sudden I fell. I took a step on what looked like regular ground and I fell and I was standing about waist deep in a, a puddle <laughs> off the side of the stream. Apparently that wasn't real ground that I stepped on. Um, and so as I was thinking about the, the message for this week, I thought about that because in Philippians chapter 4 verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, So then, my brothers and sisters, dear friends whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, stand in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. Uh, the question is, how do we stand in the Lord, particularly when it feels like the ground under us is crumbling away? You know, all the, you, you, you look at the world around us and it, it feels like everything is falling apart. How do we stand firm when it, it, we're not sure of our footing, when we're not sure what's going to fall next? Uh, I think it's, it's challenging to stand in the Lord. We've talked before uh, through this passage, uh, through this book of Philippians, that following Jesus is very simple. And that's true. It's, it's very, very simple. That doesn't mean that it's easy, right? It's just not complicated. 
but it can be very challenging. It can be very hard. Oftentimes, um, we, are, uh, we, are, we are under intense peer pressure from our society to compromise our convictions. There are lots of things in the Bible that our culture doesn't like, and so there's intense pressure from our culture to compromise on what the Bible clearly teaches. And so how do we stand firm? How do we stand in the Lord and stand on God's word when there's so much pressure and pushback against things that God's word teaches? It's not popular to hold to the inerrant truth of scripture. Um, or, Or sometimes the struggles and the challenges of life just cause us to question our faith. Something bad happens in life, something difficult comes, and then we we say, you know, what's the point of all of this anyway? Is God even real? What's the point of serving him? What's the point of following Jesus if my marriage isn't going to work out? What's the point of following Jesus if my kids don't hold to their faith? If my kid gets into drugs or alcohol or partying or whatever, what's the point of following Jesus if my aunt still gets sick and dies? What's the point of it? So these challenges come in life and they really make us question our faith. They test our faith. And it's hard sometimes to stand in the Lord in the midst of the challenges of life, in the midst of the pressures of society. That's the question that we have for the passage this morning. Paul, in the next few paragraphs, gives us three ways to stand in the Lord. Three things that we can do or three ways that we can hold our ground in Christ even when it feels like the ground is crumbling beneath our feet. So let's look at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 2 through 9 and how do we stand firm in the Lord. The first thing Paul says is we stand together. We hold our ground side by side. If you noticed in verse 1, he was sort of like over the top in his compliments. You know, he's like, my brothers and sisters, my dear friends whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. Why is he, why is he going over the top with all that? It's because he's about to say something really hard. <laughs> Look at verse 2. I appeal to Euodia and Suntuke to agree in the Lord. Now, let me just pause there for a second. If you ever come to weird names in the Bible and you don't know how to pronounce them, here's a trick. Nobody else does either. (laughs) So just say it however it sounds good to you and be confident in it. And people think, wow, you're a Bible scholar. I remember when I was a kid, uh, a pastor I knew in Missouri used to pronounce it, Uodia and sign Tyke. I appeal to Uodia and sign Tyke, you know, and so whatever, uh, however it sounds good. I appeal to Uodia and Suntuke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also say to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-worker, co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So what Paul is calling out here are two women who were leaders in the church and were in disagreement with each other. They were in conflict. And Paul is so concerned about their conflict and the division that it was creating in the church that he's actually willing to call out these two women by name in the middle of his letter, in the middle of his sermon. This would be like me uh, coming along and saying, 
Richard, and Jeff. Can you guys just get along? They're not really in conflict, by the way. At least they don't think so. Maybe the Holy Spirit's like giving a little prophetic vibe or you guys are okay with each other. All right, good. Can you imagine calling out people by name in front of the whole church who are in conflict with each other? It's a pretty big deal. That had to be embarrassing. Paul is concerned and he doesn't tell us what they were fighting about because that's not the point. It's not the point is is what they were fighting about. The point is that they were fighting at all. Paul says, you don't have anything to be fighting over. They, these two women were leaders in the church. They had served together with Paul, planting churches and teaching the gospel and praying for people. They had, uh, they, their names were written in the book of life. They, they shared one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They were filled with the same Holy Spirit. They had the same Father, God in heaven, right? Paul says, what in the world are you fighting about? The church is not a place of disunity or division. The church is a family. In our modern uh, language, we use the word church to describe a building or a worship service. So we say like, I'm going to church tomorrow morning. We're talking about driving to 2200 Lincoln Avenue and going to a worship service. But the word church in the New Testament actually meant a group of people who gathered together for a shared purpose. And and the New Testament church was a group of people gathering together to love God and love one another. That's what they were. That's what they are supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be, a family. We have been born again into God's family. It's not a place where where we uh, separate and divide. Nothing kills a church faster than division within the body of Christ. So Paul thinks this is a a serious enough deal to call out these two women by name in front of everybody. Um, We're supposed to be a family. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be disagreement in the family, right? Unity is not uniformity. We're not all the same. And if you've been a part of any kind of family, you know that there's always a little bit of tension that happens from time to time in families. I've got four boys. So if you come to my house and you stay longer than a minute and a half, you will hear a little bit of this. Stop touching me, stop touching me. I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, you know. If we get in my car and you drive for more than two blocks, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Mom, he won't give me this. Mom, he won't share that. Leave that alone, that's mine. You know, sibling rivalry, right? Families have a little bit of ups and downs and all these kinds of things. And and I'll be honest, when family members attack, it's often the most painful. I don't much care if my neighbor or somebody I don't even know has something nasty to say about me, but when a family member attacks, it really hurts. We often get the most frustrated with those we love the most, and we're often hurt the worst by those who we love the most. But even though family is messy, even though there's pestering and bickering and annoying and all those kinds of things every now and again in a family, we're family. We don't divide over it. We don't split. We don't separate over that. You've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water. Well, the blood of Christ is the thickest of all. We are united by the blood of Christ, by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in us. We all share in Christ with one another. And so we are the family of God. 
That's who we are. And that's what life is about. And that's how we hold our ground in Christ. That's how we stand. We stand together. So I want to ask you this question. Are you in conflict with anyone? Are you angry with somebody? Are you frustrated with somebody? Particularly somebody in your church family. Have you been hurt by someone? There are two ways that you can handle that situation. First way, you could go to other people in the church and talk about it. You could spread gossip and and create division in the body, in the family. Or, as uh, Pastor Tom Niebel used to say, you could go to the source. Go to the person that has hurt you or sinned against you or you have uh, been in conflict with. Go with an attitude of humility and grace and seek reconciliation, extend forgiveness. Try to be united in Christ. That doesn't mean that we're always going to see eye to eye on everything, but there are some loyalties that outweigh others. We are loyal to Christ because he has purchased us by his blood and we are loyal to one another because we've all been born again into the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So we stand in the Lord by standing together. There's no such thing as a healthy Lone Ranger Christian. We need one another to stand in Christ. The second point that Paul makes in this passage is that we stand in the Lord. Uh, How do we do that? We stand in the peace of God. We hold our ground in Christ through God-given strength. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let everyone see your gentleness. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's just walk through exactly what Paul is telling us. If we want to stand in the peace of God, there are three instructions that he gives, and then we receive God's peace. The the three instructions, verse 4, he says, to rejoice in the Lord always. In every circumstance, no matter what you're facing, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul has talked a lot about rejoicing in Christ in this letter. We've covered that in previous messages uh, in this series. So um, I'm not going to dig super deep into that now. Simply the point I want to make is, how is it that we can rejoice in every single circumstance, even the hard times? It's those three little words, rejoice in the Lord. Our joy comes from being loved by God. There's no greater joy, there's no greater security, there's no greater peace in life than knowing we are loved completely, fully, perfectly, and unconditionally by God. There's nothing you can do that would make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you any less. His love for you is complete and whole and perfect and unconditional. And that is a source of strength and peace and joy so that we can rejoice in the Lord no matter what circumstances we face if we want the peace of God we must remember that our joy is in Christ in verse 5 he says let everyone see your gentleness now that word gentleness in the Greek has the the meaning of self-sacrifice or selflessness Paul is talking about people who are humble and gracious toward others People who don't insist on getting everything their way but are willing to give up what they want 
for the good of someone else. It's exactly what Paul was talking about back in chapter 2 of Philippians when he said uh, that you should consider others as more important than yourself and each of us should look not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others. Here he's saying, look, that's what it means to be gentle. Let everyone see your gentleness. The point that he's making is this. The moment that I begin to insist on my own rights, getting what I deserve, getting things my way, that's the moment that I forfeit the peace of God. Because I'm not focused on what God is doing in my life. I'm focused on what I didn't get that I think I deserve. And there's no peace in that. Paul says, look, if you will let go of what you think you deserve and you'll let God handle the situation, you will have the peace of God in your life. Do you believe what Paul said at the end of verse five? The Lord is near. If God is near, do I trust him to handle the situation or do I need to take control and try to steer things so that I get what I think I deserve? If it's all about me, there's no peace. But if it's all about Christ, there is much peace. The third thing he says is in verse six. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. See, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Prayer is the cure for anxiety. Prayer is the cure for fear. Prayer is the cure for worry. Prayer is the cure for not knowing what's coming next. When when the ground seems to be crumbling out from under your feet, prayer is the cure. Prayer is what gives you that rock on which to stand. The way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. Now, that's not always easy. What is prayer? One of my seminary professors, Dr. Bill Thrasher, said that prayer is an attitude toward God. It's not just sitting down and telling God everything that I need. Of course, that's a part of prayer is is presenting our requests to God. And Paul says here, no matter what your requests are, bring them all to God. But prayer is a lot more than just me giving God a a honeydew list, right? Prayer is also about communing with God, spending time with God. And as Dr. Thrasher used to say, it's an attitude toward God. And, And he represented it with a math problem. Here's the math problem. Prayer equals helplessness plus faith times thankfulness. See, there are situations in our life about which we are helpless. They are outside of our control. And and if I want the peace of God, I need to recognize those things that are beyond my ability to control. And I just need to say, I don't have any power to affect the situation. So I'm going to put faith in God to handle that problem that I am helpless to fix. And whatever God does, I'm going to thank him. Because God knows what is best And he's done that time after time after time. So when we have this attitude of helplessness plus faith and it's multiplied by thankfulness, that's an attitude of prayer that brings great peace. That's what Paul says in in verse seven. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts 
and minds in Christ Jesus. If we find our joy in Christ, if we, uh, if we bring all of our cares and our anxieties and our worries to the Lord, if we, uh, if we let go of trying to control things in life and let our gentleness be seen because we trust God, Paul says we will have a peace that the world cannot even begin to comprehend. And honestly, we can't even begin to comprehend. Someone will say, how do you have peace in this circumstance? I don't really know other than God is with me. One of the commentators uh, I, I read as I was studying this week said that peace that Jesus gives is not the absence of trouble, but the confidence that he is right there with you in the midst of the trouble. When Paul says the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds, he doesn't mean that your life is going to be smooth sailing. He means that even in the turbulent times of life, God's presence and peace and strength will be yours. About 15 years ago, Duke University uh, did a study on peace of mind. And in that study, they identified a number of, uh, of key practices in order to have peace of mind. I wanted to share five of them with you today. This Duke University study uh, of peace in mind. Here are five things that they said. Uh, if you want to have peace of mind, number one, forgive those who've wronged you. Don't harbor bitterness or resentment. Number two, let go of things that are outside of your control. Don't waste your time and energy fighting conditions you cannot change. Number three, stay relationally connected. Don't withdraw from family and friends during seasons of stress. Number four, focus on the positives. Don't indulge in self-pity when things go wrong. And number five, find something bigger than yourself to believe in. And they said, if, if you'll do these five things, you'll have peace of mind. Now, Duke University could have saved a lot of time and money on this research study if they would have just read the letter of Philippians. Right? There's nothing new under the sun, right? Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. And here they're doing this big study 15 years ago and how much money they spent, I don't know. And, and it's all right here in God's word. If we want to have peace, we turn to God. We rejoice in all circumstances in Christ. We let go of trying to control our lives and we bring everything to God in prayer. That's what peace uh, that's what brings peace. The third thing that Paul says in this uh, passage is if we want to stand in the Lord, we stand together, we stand uh, in the peace of God. And number three, we stand with the God of peace. We hold our ground in Christ by standing with God himself. That's what verses eight and nine are about. He says in verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul says if you want to have the God of peace, if you want to stand in the peace of God, you need to think about things that are reflective of God's character. All of the words that he described used in, those, in that verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, all of those words describe the character of Christ. And Paul says, if you want to have peace and you want the God of peace himself to stand with you, first of all, you need to clean out your mind of all the garbage and you need to focus and think about the things that are like Christ. 
I can tell you just from personal experience, a few weeks ago, uh, I decided to get off of Facebook and my peace factor went up by like 150%, right? Just that one switch. Because, let's see, does this describe Facebook? Whatever's true, well, whatever, I guess that depends on your definition of true. Whatever is uh, worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. None of those things were popping up in my Facebook feed. And I was so distracted by that and, and it was ruining my peace. And Paul says, no, no, look, focus on the things that look like Jesus. Because we were created in God's image. We were designed to reflect the character of Christ to the world around us. So the more that we focus on Jesus, the more that he begins to make those words descriptive of our lives. And then we begin to reflect Christ to those around us. There's an important principle between verses 8 and 9 that Paul's calling out. The first one, uh, well, he says in verse 8, think about these things. And in verse 9, he says, do these things. Think about these things and then do these things. The principle that he's referring to or teaching is this. Right thought precedes and leads to right action. If you think about the things that reflect Christ, over time that will begin to influence your actions so that your actions begin to reflect Christ. But if you think about things that are are evil or bad or terrible or or awful or scary or whatever, then over time you don't have any peace. Your your life begins to look like a hermit because you're separating yourself from the world and you're filled with anxiety and fear. Why? Because your mind is focused on all these things and thoughts influence actions. So if our thoughts are focused on the things that reflect the character of Christ, then our lives will begin to do that as well. Think about it and put it into practice. And Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. Recently, I was talking with my boys about this principle. And uh, we were talking about, uh, we we were trout fishing. Um, My Older two boys are starting to get into that with me. And so we were talking about a trout stream and they were asking, you know, why are there no trout in the Yahara River? And I said, well, the water's not clean enough <laughs> for one thing. Um, and so we were talking about that and, and trout have to live in a really clean uh, stream and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I said, what happens if you uh, go uh, uh, at the beginning of a trout stream and you start dumping in all kinds of garbage and chemicals and everything else? And they said, all of the rest of the stream becomes polluted and the fish die, right? Because up here, we're dumping in all this garbage. So it kills everything else downstream. Well, our hearts and our minds are like that. If we dump a whole bunch of garbage into our hearts and our minds, everything else in our lives is downstream from that, becomes polluted, and it doesn't reflect Christ. But if we keep the trash out of our hearts and our minds and we fill them with the good things of Christ, then everything else that flows downstream from that reflects Christ. And, um, and Asher said, oh, that's why you're so picky about what you let us watch on Netflix. Yes! <laughs> Victory for a day. <laughs> right? right? Exactly. What are we putting into our minds? What are, we le- what are we watching with our eyes? What content are we engaging? What music are we listening to? 
How much garbage are we allowing into our hearts through what we're engaging in the world around us? Well, Paul says, if you focus on the things that reflect Christ, your life will begin to reflect Christ. And the last uh, line of verse 9, the peace, the God of peace will be with you. It's not just that God gives you his peace. God actually gives you his presence, personal presence standing with you. And if God is for us and with us, who can stand against us? This is how we stand in the Lord. We stand together. We stand in the peace of God and we stand with the God of peace himself. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and as they're coming, let me ask this question in conclusion. If the God of peace is going to be with us, with you, the question is, do you know the God of peace? Not do you know about the God of peace? Not do you know the stories about Jesus? Not could you pass a a theology test if we gave it to you. Not could you uh, read through our doctrinal statement and sign, yes, I understand all those things. Do you know the God of peace himself? Have you experienced his presence and his strength with you personally? Do you know the God of peace? Are you clinging to him? I want to share this. Uh, Somebody sent this to me this week from a devotional that they had just read. It says, all the ideals and the securities that we held a few years ago or even just a few months ago are crumbling. What are we holding on to now? Millions cling to the wreckage they have made of their lives, thinking they have nowhere else to turn. Others cling to false ideologies or hollow promises from society's leaders. Still others cling to possessions or relationships or pleasures. Yes, we should cling in hope. But what if you're clinging to something that is sinking? What are we clinging on to? Where are we putting our hope? If I'm holding on to the edge of the ship that's sinking, I'm not going to have much peace. But I have personally found, and millions of others around the world have found great peace and great hope and great strength, even in the midst of the worst storms in life, by clinging to Jesus. Faith in Christ is more than enough to overcome any obstacle, any challenge, any storm. Jesus is our rock. So when everything else crumbles around us, we stand on the rock of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're watching online and you say, I've I've played the church game. I've, I've grown up in church. My grandma was in church. My parents were in church. I go to church. I do all the church stuff. I know all that stuff. But I've never actually experienced the God of peace and his personal presence with me. And I want to. It's just a matter of reaching out for him, of believing that he's near, and he will answer when we cry out. He will call. It's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to grow up in a family that went to church. It's not enough even to be married to someone who is a a devout Christian. We need to be personally surrendered to Christ. 
our faith is not an individual faith, but it is a very personal faith. And it's not just believing a list of doctrinal statements, but it's knowing the God of peace, giving your heart to him, being born again into his family so that we stand together in the peace of God with God himself by our side. And if you need to make a decision or you would like to have that experience, it's just as simple as praying something like this. God, I have not trusted in you. I have walked away from you. I've followed my own path in life. Would you forgive me for that sin? And I turn around from whatever I've been chasing and I give my life to Jesus Christ and I receive you as the God and Savior of my soul. When you pray that, God sends his Holy Spirit into you and the God of peace is with you. Let's close with a song.